<laughs> Listen, so it's not only a reminder about how extraordinary prayer is. Maybe it's a wake-up call about for some of us about how we view it, how we approach God, how we use what God has given us in our lives. You know, we probably should start with the simplest definition of prayer, and that would be speaking to the Lord, speaking to God. You know, it's communion with God with our thoughts and our words as Christians. It's a way we connect with God, communicating our emotions and our wants and our needs. It's really a powerful form of fellowship between us and the creator of the universe. I'm not sure we recognize and are aware of how, what an incredible privilege this is. Because for those who don't know God, it is true that God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. And the Bible says when you seek his face, you will find him. And when you find him, he points to his son, Jesus Christ. That is true. But for believers who are born again, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we've been blessed with this opportunity that we can come to the creator of the universe, that we can come to God all the time. That we can speak with him. That we consistently, we can seek his wisdom, we can seek his guidance, that we can bring all the hurts, we can bring everything we're going through to him all the time. There's no answering machine when you'll have to call back. He's 24-7. But that's a privilege. Because if you don't have a personal relationship with him, he's not hearing you. It's a privilege, it's a blessing, and sometimes it's a blessing that we take for granted. Sometimes it's a blessing that's hindered by our choices and our actions and our attitudes. As Christians today, I want to encourage you to be cautious, to be attentive, to pay attention, because along with other things in the church, and it could be a list, prayer can be watered down. It can be treated very nonchalantly. And sometimes the word gets thrown around, especially it comes with making choices. Somebody approaches you about a choice, and you're like, I'll pray about it. Because sometimes we're using that word not reverentially. We're using that word to shut down the person who's talking to us. Because you can't argue against that. And sometimes they say, I'll pray about it, means that's the end of it. Don't bring it up again. I don't want to hear it. You know, it's funny because I had other people laughing in first service and because that's a Christianese term that we do to stop everybody from asking the next question. Or when someone's hurting and you tell them, I'll pray for you or you're in my prayers. Listen, I hear that all the time in the world. I heard that at the high school. Every time there's a tragic accident, every time someone goes down hurt, every time there's unexpected death, especially the death of a youth, people say all the time, you're in our thoughts and prayers. It's completely empty. And I understand why they say it, because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. You know, I'm hoping that as Christians, that when we say it, we mean it. I'm hoping that as Christians, when we come to those choices, and I know, you know, at least many of you do, because we've talked about it. You get to those choices, you get to those crosswords, that you actually pray about it, and you listen, and hopefully you submit to the answer and don't do your own thing anyways. 
Or when you say to somebody, I'm going to pray for you, you're actually going to intercede for them and you're going to lift them up and maybe even shed tears for them because you love them and you know they're hurting. And they're a brother or sister of yours. I guess so. Uh, the one thing I'm trying to say here, don't get caught in that trap. Because, I mean, there's a, there's a line there where we may be sinning. We're leading people down a road thinking that we're lifting them up in prayer and we're not doing it. You know, one thing that prayer isn't, and it's something to be taken lightly. It's a serious matter to go to Jesus Christ for his guidance, for direction, for help. How we pray and how we go to the Lord can vary. It can be silent. It can be loud. It can be really loud. It can be private. It can be corporate. It can vary in many different ways. But the one thing that doesn't vary, the one thing that has to be consistent is this. It's got to be in reverence. We should always remember that God is watching. He knows the motivation of our heart. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's everywhere. And in the book of Luke, we see an example of God is watching. We see an example as two people are praying, and Jesus Christ sees their hearts. In Luke 18, 9, it says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people, cheaters and sinners and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. And said he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you this, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, the tax collector wasn't righteous. I mean, excuse me, tax collector was righteous. The Pharisee was not. The Pharisee was coming to God actually irreverent. And he comes to God with an irreverence that begins in his heart and he moves to his mind and generates thoughts and develops into an attitude that's not righteous. And a lot of times that whole thing is fueled by selfishness, which translates into views and choices and actions that are also not righteous. See, like the Pharisees, sometimes we struggle with, look at their sin compared to our sin. Look how bad they are. Look how good my life is. I never did anything wrong. And we start judging out of selfishness. Stop putting the spotlight on ourselves. And like the Pharisee, you know, pointing out somebody else who's worse off. Worse a sinner. And all of a sudden they get puffed up. And we've seen this. Some of us have seen this. You'll agree with this. And the show begins because they start to pray. But these people know how to pray. They know what to say. They know the right intonation. They know the right level of loudness. They may even cry on cue. I've seen it. But you know what? Guess what? There's no repentance there. And it's not righteous. But it's a show. 
Bottom line, you want to be irreverent? Put on a show. The Pharisees checked all the boxes. You know, they met all the requirements. They fasted twice a week, not just once, but twice. They gave a tenth of everything they had. They served, and you know what? They wanted everyone to know it. They wanted everyone to know it. But God knew their heart was not righteous. For us today, we certainly don't want to be by them. We want to be like the publican. We want to be like the tax collector. He purposely stood at a distance from the Holy of Holies with a conscience that was well aware of his sinful position. He wasn't even able to look up to the sky. Listen, there is a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. And now there's consequences. Godly sorrow is, I'm sorry I offended God because of my sin. There is a huge difference between the two. He was not even able to look up to the sky. He was feeling unworthy. He repented and he left justified by God. Unlike the Pharisee who boasted about his own righteousness and he acknowledged that, excuse me, unlike the Pharisee who boasted about his own righteousness, the public and the tax collector, he acknowledges that he's a sinner and he goes to God, a truly penitent man. Eyes fixed on the ground, showing he's under great distress. Beating his chest, showing he's in, in anguish. He has true sorrow for his sin. This is a man who's going to the Lord and handing it all over. And he's trusting and relying on Jesus Christ. His sorrow over his sin is real. And so is his repentance. And what does it say? He's justified before God, his sin's forgiven. As believers, we need to be wise here. We need to be wise because in our own lives, sometimes we give the devil a foothold. We have sinned against God. Maybe we've hurt other brothers and sisters in Christ. But as believers and dwell by the Holy Spirit, we know that if we've done something against God, that there's going to be conviction. There's going to be a conviction to repent, a conviction to go to the Lord. But we have to be mindful about how we approach him. We don't want to be like the Pharisee, really acknowledging some of our sinful actions, but kind of skirting the issue or trying to ignore them like they're not that big of a deal. Or maybe like the Pharisee pointing to all the good things he did. He's fasting, serving, he's tithing, hoping that God won't look in this direction. Certainly not reverent, certainly not righteous. As children of God, we know that God knows our hearts. We should know that he knows our unrepentant sin. He knows the actions that we've taken that have actually glorified the enemy and not Jesus Christ. Boy, that's a powerful statement. knows the actions and we may have hurt other Christians or caused them to stumble. The divine appointments we've missed. The times we wouldn't open our mouth to share the gospel when God is trying to use us. God knows everything. And we say that. We say, I know God knows he's everywhere. He's all powerful. He knows everything. And then we try to hide sin from him. Why do we do that? If we know that's not true. 
You know, I think that's the best place to approach it. When you go to God and you know and you're assured in your heart and in your mind and you're 100% in that God already knows everything, you shouldn't be afraid to share your deepest, darkest secrets and mistakes, right? Amen? I think what stops us from doing that sometimes, though, is fear. And I don't believe it's this. I don't think it's fear about being transparent about our sin. What I think it is, is that we're fearful of what God's going to ask us to do next. Because once we bring it out and we put it on the table, God's already got a plan. And usually it has something to do with making amends. Usually it has something to do with giving forgiveness or asking for forgiveness. Many times it has to do with leaving your offering at the altar and going and make it right and come back after that, right? We don't want to. Many times when we go to God about these things that are difficult and we repent and we're talking about our sin, you know what he's doing, Jesus Christ is doing? He's pointing to his word. And the sad thing about that is Christians, we often know that the answer's in his word, but we don't like it. We know what we're supposed to do next. But man, we're praying there's another way. And God's like... We should approach him in faith, in trust, willing to submit to the answer. Willing to submit to the answer. And definitely in reverence. You know, as a Christian's understanding and recognizing who God is, the righteousness, the holiness, there should be a reverence when we go to the throne room. Understanding that he's holy, and that he loves us, and that he's righteous. Understanding that he has final say, not us. That's a tough one for people. They want to come at it at a different angle and try to get a different answer. When we go to we need to understand that the answer that he's going to give us is not always what we want to hear. But he's God and we are not. Man, as, as Christians, we should be in awe of who the Lord is and what he has done. Where is the awe? Is there awe? And we certainly should be on guard against their reverence as we approach him. Which brings me to the next question. How do we know we're approaching, approaching in reverence? You know, when we're approaching in reverence, we have a crystal clear picture of who God is in our mind. We have a crystal clear picture of everything I just talked about. We know that he's holy. We know that he's righteous. We know and wrap your mind around this, that he's the creator of the universe. Because sometimes when I say that, people's thoughts go like this. When you say Jesus Christ, they go like this. Well, Jesus Christ is this. So we have a clear picture on our mind who he is. We have a godly sorrow for what we're about to convince. We come seeking his will. We come with a desire to line up with his will. 
We come with a willingness to submit to his will. See, that's when push comes to shove and it becomes about walking in faith. Because when you go to prayer with God and you know he's going to give you the answer that's right and yours, the one you may want, is wrong, you already have to have in your mind been determined to submit to his will regardless of what the answer is. That's called trusting in faith. And it's not easy. We can come to him. We know we're coming to him in reverence. We can expect that he's going to answer because we know in our heart that we are sealed. We are children of God. That we have the Holy Spirit. We are assured that we belong to him. James 1.6 says this, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They are unstable in everything they do. Listen, when we approach God, we're supposed to approach him with the assurance that he hears us and will answer us. This verse is speaking about people who are doubting before they even pray. They're praying and they're leaving a plan B for God. They're praying and they're giving an excuse for God in case he's too busy to answer. What does it say about those people? Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. We approach God in trust, not letting the doubts in the world send us in a different direction. Listen, many times we're already moving in the direction of the world and what the world has to offer before we've even gone to prayer. We're already giving God an out. And we've already got the plan, so when God doesn't answer this and we don't get healed or he doesn't answer this, the finances aren't taken care of or whatever need it is, we're already walking to the world. We're already running there sometimes. You know why? Because we see some sort of answer and it's tangible. And in our mind, I'd rather go there than be afraid that God's not going to come through. But God is going to come through. He always comes through. And maybe the tick before it strikes 12 and you're having a heart attack, but it comes through. Can't let the world manipulate us and maneuver us. You know, Sean said from Providence Rescue Mission, he said something really interesting and he put it a different way than I would have. And he said, you know, you either have the Holy Spirit, you are demonically possessed or you're demonically oppressed. We have the Holy Spirit. We rely on God. Don't let the world shove you in a different direction because you may be missing out on what God's trying to do in your life. You know, when we approach God, we're approaching reverence. We're approaching all those things I just said. And it doesn't matter which type of prayer. And the Bible mentions different types. And here are a few. Intercessory for someone else. Thanksgiving, a gratitude to God. Supplication, asking earnestly and humbly asking for needs. Prayers of repentance, prayers of forgiveness, spiritual warfare against the enemy, spiritual warfare against thoughts in our own mind, spiritual warfare against the demonic in general. You know, there are different reasons to go, 
But hopefully we're going with a reverent attitude. But here's the next side of this. Do we go alone or we go with others? And Jesus gave us some examples of these two things. And when it comes to praying alone in Matthew 6, 5, he said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing on the synagogue, in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into the room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Listen, here's another example. Don't put on a show. Here's an example of those people who want to be seen and they want the spotlight standing on the corner, you know, and they pray so eloquently and everyone goes, wow, man, that guy can pray. They receive their reward. God said the praise, maybe the claps, you know, those words that people say, they've already got their reward because they weren't approaching God. They were approaching the crowd for themselves. You know, but it also gives an example of what we should do. And we often call this the prayer closet. You know, and we say you go into your prayer closet and you pray. And it's really referring to any place you're not going to be hindered or interrupted while seeking the face of God. Some place that you're going to shut your cell phone off. Some people just dropped a heartbeat when I said shut your cell phone off because it's connected to your hip. You can't live without it now. I remember when there was no fax machines, I'm old. Anyways. So it's a place where you're unhindered. It's about setting time aside to fellowship with God and prayer privately. You know, for Jesus Christ, this time on this earth, this was like essential part of his walk on the earth. You know, even in, we have an example in Luke, after healing the crowds, of course he does healing, right? The crowds started to grow huge, and who do they want? Jesus, he's healing everybody. So they come, and what does he do? He retreats. And it says he withdrew and went to a lonely place and he prayed. Other verses say he went to a desolate place. He went somewhere where he could be uninterrupted so he could be in communion with God. You know what? For me, that's a no-brainer. If it's that important to Jesus Christ to take time to go and be alone so he can commune with the Father, shouldn't we? I mean, I guess that's a whole nother sermon because he leaves the crowd who are seeking him out for healing to go do that. Some people would argue against that probably, but it was Jesus, so you're going to lose that one. So he prayed himself, but sometimes he also prayed in front of others for their benefit. In John eleven forty one, he said, they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. We know what that one's all about. You know, he prayed out loud. It was witnessed by others for their benefit, for their belief. It's important to recognize the difference here. Christ wasn't putting on a show. His spotlight was on the miraculous. His spotlight was on the power of God. His spotlight was on, look who sent me. He retreated many times the presence of the Father to commune with him, to fellowship with him in prayer. And then there is also times that Christ wanted corporate prayer. And he wanted his disciples to pray together. 
In Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then it says that Jesus goes a stone throw ahead of them. He goes a little farther and he drops to his knees. Now we know, listen, Christ knew what was coming. He knew the cross. He knew the crucifixion. He knew the brutal beatings. He knew he was going to take the sins of the world. And so he's praying in anguish. And it said he's sweating drops of blood while he's pressing into the Father. Because he doesn't want to do this, but he knows he has to. So he's stressed. And then when he gets done praying, he gets up. And he goes back to the disciples. And what are they doing? They're out cold. They're sleeping. And he says to them, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You know, with everything that Christ had shared with them on the way to the Gethsemane, you know, they knew he was going to die. He had shared that one of them was going to betray him. He had shared that they were going to deny him. You would think they'd be praying for him and for themselves. But they don't. They're emotionally overwhelmed. Verse 45 says, exhausted from sorrow. Their means of escape, even if it's momentary, their means of escape from the harsh reality that they're facing was sleep. And Christ calls them out for it because it wasn't a time to sleep. It was a time to pray. Now, listen, this is something we need to pay attention to today because a lot of times we're giving in to the emotion We're retreating, we're isolating, some are even sleeping, some stay in their room for three weeks, some stay in their bed and cover their head, some won't get out. Listen, it's not time to sleep, it's the time to pray. Sometimes our anxiety and our worry and our sorrow and it goes unchecked and we let it run rampant and it just saps our strength. But we have to remember when it saps our strength, good, because when we're weak, we're going to find his strength. For us today, when we get in those situations and we feel like we're beat up, we feel like we're in the pit, we feel like we're alone in a crowded room, it's not time to isolate. It's not time to sleep, it's time to pray. You see, the battle was coming their way. The temptation was about to be laid out before them. And beyond the spiritual, supernatural help of the Father, they were going to fail horribly. And they do. And the fear overwhelms them and they get scattered. And even Peter, who said, I'll never abandon you, abandons them and denies them three times. They needed to pray for what was coming, not only for Christ, but for their own protection. And then Jesus makes this, this powerful statement. And, it, you know, it's a pretty famous one. When I say it, you'll, you'll acknowledge that. But it's something that speaks to everything we've already talked about and what I'm going to talk about at the end of this sermon. And he says this in Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, isn't that what gets in the way all the time? 
Listen, some have a habit of giving into the flesh like this. Oh, too much pressure. I'm going to go in that direction. The Holy Spirit's always going to want us seek the face, to seek the face of God. The Holy Spirit's always going to want us to seek ye first the things of the kingdom of God. And the flesh is always going to find an excuse. Every Christian should have a drawing to pray in your prayer closet. Every Christian should have a drawing to pray as the body of Christ. Every Christian should come together in smaller groups to pray. Every Christian should want to lift up their families and their friends and their relatives and their church and their households and their children. Because you know what? It's a privilege and we can. And Satan doesn't want us to do that. And the flesh is always going to draw us away. The flesh is always going to come up with an excuse. The flesh, try to, try to set yourself up to pray every day. Try to set you that first hour in the morning or whatever it is. And watch the phone ring and watch these weird things happen. And watch all, all these things get in the way. I've even laughed about it with other brothers and sisters sometimes. Because it happens all the time. But you know what? It's up to us to say, no, I'm pressing in. No, I'm pressing in. No, I'm pressing in. And I'm not biting. Because Satan doesn't want us to go. Doesn't want us to gather together. Doesn't want us to do any of that stuff. Individually and corporately, we ought to be spiritually prepared for the battle, for the temptation, so we can hear God clearly. Holy Spirit's always going to draw us to God's word and prayer, but it's the flesh that will always find an excuse. For every Christian, there will be a drawing to pray individually, and I said that. You know, to seek God's face and all those things we want to lift up. We're gonna, there's going to be that drawing to do that because we know who God is, and we know the battle belongs to the Lord. And I, you know, I've said this before. Garrett flipped his car over two years ago, and he walked out with nothing, a, a scratch, a literal scratch. And I said to my wife, I wonder if we hadn't been praying for him every day, what would have happened? You don't know, but you need to prepare. You need to hand it over to God. I think to be truthful with ourselves, to examine our walk today, we should really ask ourselves, each individually, if we're watching and praying or sleeping. You know, and even that, within that, there's different levels because if we're doing it, are we doing it sometime or all the time? Let's pray without ceasing, right? Are we doing it one day a week? Are we doing it every hour of every day? Are we doing it every 15 minutes of every... What are we doing? We have the ability to press into God all the time. We have the ability of getting... Hey, do you have anxiety attacks? Are you praying for them in advance because you know the enemy uses them? Or are you waiting to have a meltdown and then you stop praying? I'm just using that as an example. Do you wake up in the middle of the night and your heart's beating out of your chest and everything that you've done wrong is rolling over your head in like a movie? And you're like, how is this ever going to work? How am I ever going to do that? 
Listen, you're waiting for that to happen. You know it's going to happen again and again. And then you start praying, which is not wrong, but it's wrong not to be prepared because God told us that. You can prepare. Listen, you're having trouble in your marriage. You're having trouble in your life, in your households, at your job. Are you praying in advance and letting God do what God's going to do? Or are you waiting for the next blow up? And then you'll pray through. There's a difference here. Watchful and praying is a consistent thing. It's something that's ongoing. It's not something that's 10 minutes and then done. 10 minutes and then it's done. Listen, if some are sleeping, it makes it very difficult to move forward as the body of Christ to be effective in what God has for us. Please keep in mind this too. You can be working your fingers to the bone in service to God, but you can still be spiritually snoozing. The Lord desired the disciples to come together and to pray for their own temptation for him. And this is something that the enemy certainly doesn't want us to do as the body of Christ in small groups or the local assembly. And sitting here today, we're given some instruction about this in the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews was writing to the Christian Jews who were under persecution. And they were getting a lot of pressure to give up Jesus Christ and to return to the law and following the law. And he says this in Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as ye see the day approaching. Listen, this is a warning not to fall into the trap of the enemy. This is speaking to come together as followers of Christ, to consider one another in the Greek means to know each other's trials, to know what each other's struggles are. To know what people are going through as difficulties and weaknesses and coming together and praying for them and encouraging them and exhorting them, which means spurring them on to take righteous action. It's also talking about demonstrating the love for one another, doing good works for one another and also for the outside as a testimony to the gospel, doing it together. He tells them not to forsake assembling together. And this is, I love this part, because this is speaking about small groups of the whole local church. The Greek word for assembly here is only used in one other place. And that's the assembling of Christians when Christ comes back. That is a powerful picture of us assembling as a local church, how it's viewed. It's a powerful picture of what it means to come together as believers to fellowship, pray, be in God's word, unified as the body. Listen, even when you look in the book of Acts, they were concerned with in Acts 2.42, it said all believers devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and fellowship, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And in verse 44, it said all the believers had met together in one place and shared everything they had. If you didn't think so, let me just make a couple statements. To pray in groups is crucial. To pray in your prayer closet is crucial. 
To pray in a local assembly is crucial. But today, the question is this. Do we see the need? Do we see the need as Jesus Christ saw the need? Do we see the need as the first church and Acts see the need? Do you think that prayer has been watered down? Do you think that as we approach God that we're doing it reverently? Listen, like the disciples, prayer helps us to be spiritually prepared for what's coming. But unfortunately, as I said, some people wait till it comes and then they react to it. It's not the same. Why? Because damage is already done then. You know, even when it comes to Ephesians chapter 6, and that's famous when it talks about the armor of God, and they go through all the parts of the armor of God, including the word of God as the sword of the spirit. And at the end of that, it says, at all times, pray by the power of the spirit. Pray all kinds of prayers. Be watchful so that you can pray. Always keep on praying for all of God's people. Pray, 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 pray. And that's after talking about putting all the armor on. Because you need it. You know what? Because without Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. Without the Lord doing the battling, it doesn't matter. The battle belongs to him, and we need to go to him every time and all the time. Without prayer, some of the skirmishes that we go through are going to be lost. Without prayer, the enemy could get a foothold in our life. Without prayer, the body of Christ may be ineffective in its mission to share the gospel. Without prayer, the flesh is going to gain ground, and the pride may drive people into this, the I got this mode. And Christ is on the back burner and they're doing it all on their own. Without prayer, spiritual discernment is dulled. Without prayer, you might not be hearing what God's saying. And you might be missing out on his direction and the blessings that he has for you and your family. So we ought to pray as individuals. We ought to pray with others. We ought to pray privately and corporately. We ought to gather together as the body of Christ to pray and seek God's faith. You know, and this is the last verse I'm going I'm to leave you with. And it's this, Matthew 21, 12. Christ makes this really powerful statement. And we know Jesus enters the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling. They're overturning tables and the money changes and benches of those selling doves. And he does that because they're taking advantage of the people. They're greedy. They're not righteous. And I wouldn't say freak out, but you know what I mean. Righteous indignation. Starts flipping tables and drives them out. And then he makes this statement. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. You're making it a den of robbers. Declares his house is a house of prayer. His church is a place where all saints can come and meet together jointly praying, seeking God's face together. It's a place where the body of Christ can come and hear what God has to say through his word. Where a brother or sister can come and be encouraged. Somebody can be exhorted, called back to the path of righteousness. They can share their trials and their difficulties and their tribulations. And you have somebody who is there who will willingly come alongside you and lift you up. It's a place where somebody's spiritual gifts or gift can be used for the betterment of the body as we move forward for Christ. 
And frankly, when we're doing all these things and we're coming together as a church, we're coming together as a group. When we're going to the throne room and we're sharing communion and we're repenting together and we're remembering what the Lord has done and we're lifting up families or whatever it is. Man, there should be this joy. There should be a joy. And you know where that joy comes from? Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Our job is to do what God has told us to do. Our job is to be people of prayer and to make sure this is a house of prayer. Our job is to remember that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And to know that when people want to pray, the excuse is going to fly. To know when people want to pray, everything's going to get in the way. Probably be the first sunny day in three weeks. You know, and don't laugh because, and I have to say this, and this is kind of sad, and I understand it, which is even worse. You know, if we have a week of rain, and then all of a sudden we have a prayer meeting that next day, and we know it's going to be 75 and gorgeous, we already know our numbers are going to be done. Because people are going to go enjoy the day and skip praying with the rest of us. I don't have to say that's wrong because you know it's wrong. We don't want to be there. That's the flesh is weak. So listen, before we end, I am going to ask, and I know some people need prayer. And hopefully, the Holy Spirit is pointing some things out to you like he did to me about things that I wasn't quite doing right or my attitude was wrong or how I'm approaching God or maybe I'm not approaching God enough or I'm not handing things over enough. I'm hopefully you see the power and prayer and the privilege that it is to come along a brother or sister in Christ and to lift them up in times of need. So I'm going to ask anybody who needs prayer to lift your, raise your hand right now so that we can pray for you as a brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to ask Christians to get up, please surround these people, pray for them. And then we'll pray in general. But now's the time. We have people over there too. Hello to you right behind you, Linda, right behind you. And listen, you can share, share your trial, what you're going through right now with somebody who's praying for you. And then we'll pray in general for everyone. As we've done this, you know, maybe there's somebody sitting here who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just important for you to know this. As sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, every human being from the disobedience of Adam and Eve from that point on was born sinful. And that was a problem for a holy God who couldn't have relationship with sin. And so it was God himself that came up with a plan so that he could be reconciled to us, that he could walk hand in hand with us once again. And that plan came with a name and it was Jesus Christ. 
The Bible tells us that the wages of sin are death and there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so Jesus Christ came as the son of God to die on the cross for sin. He died in our stead and he shed his blood so there would be forgiveness available. So there's forgiveness available at the cross. What our part is, is to go to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive our sins, to ask him to come into our life as Lord. And when we do that, he does. And we receive the Holy Spirit and we become a child of God. And when you become a child of God with the Holy Spirit in you, you are drawn to do this stuff. You are drawn to help brothers and sisters in Christ. You are drawn to cry out to God when things are bad. You are drawn to come to church and kneel at the altar when you know that's the place you need to go. Christ did it for us, but our part is to receive it and to ask for it. So if there's anyone here that has not asked Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior... Listen, you are not on a path to heaven. You are on a path to hell. And we can help you with that. I know we're going long, but this is worth it. Amen. So listen, if there's anyone here who wants to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who hasn't, raise your hand. And then we'll know. Okay, we're good. And then I'll see you Tuesday. We'll do this again. So, Lord, bow your head to me. Thank you, Lord, for this time together, Lord. Thank you for, uh, Lord, just, just moving in this body. Thank you for the filling of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we love you. We love each other, Lord. Help us to see one another through your eyes, Lord. Bless everyone who's here today, Lord. Anoint them. Empower them, Lord. Help them to walk out of here, Lord, recharged and refreshed and renewed in the power of God. And we, Lord, just pray this in your holy name, Jesus. And we all said, Amen. Amen. If anyone needs to talk to me more about Christ, please come up here and we'll talk.